There we go. I love that uh, line, see what love can do and dare. Here's what love can be. The reading this morning, gospel reading, is from Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles, that these words seemed to the disciples an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. In the mid-1950s, a 14-year-old girl named Jean was running down Park Avenue in New York City, and she ran into an old man and knocked him to his, off his feet onto the ground. As she pulled him back up, he laughed and he said to her, young lady, are you planning to run like that for the rest of your life? Well, sir, it looks that way. Bon voyage, then, he said. Bon voyage, she said, and she ran away. A week later, she ran into him again on Park Avenue. This time, she was walking her dog. He invited himself to join her, and they began to take walks in Central Park several times a week, on, at least on always on Tuesdays and Thursdays. She couldn't quite understand his French last name, so she just called him Mr. Tayer. Mr. Tayer was quite simply in love with the world. One day, as they were walking along, he saw a caterpillar inching its way along the ground, and he got down on all fours and examined the caterpillar and beckoned her to come down and look with him. After exclaiming over the exquisiteness of this caterpillar, he looked at Jean and her 14-year-old self, and he said, Jean, can you feel yourself like a caterpillar? Well, Jean was full of adolescent insecurity, and she agreed that she felt quite a bit of resonance with the caterpillar. Then he said, think of your own metamorphosis. 
What will you become when you become a butterfly? Un papillon. What is the butterfly of Jean? Their explorations continued. Jean said that being with Mr. Tayer was like being in attendance at God's own party, a continuous celebration of life and its mysteries. Always he saw interconnections between things. He talked to the trees. He talked to the wind, to the rocks. He talked to them as dear friends, as beloved even. He would say, take a deep breath. Now imagine you are breathing the same air as Jesus. Take another deep breath. Now you are breathing the same air as Rene Descartes. She said there were a lot of Frenchmen that you were breathing the air with. But the best thing about Mr. Tayer, Jean would come home and tell her mother, Mother, I was with my old man again today, and when I am with him, I leave my littleness behind. You could not be stuck in littleness and be in the radiant field of Mr. Tayer. On the Thursday before Easter Sunday in 1955, Jean and Mr. Tayer said goodbye on the street. He said au revoir, and she said au revoir. And her dog held back a little bit, and she went off home. And she went back the next Tuesday, and he wasn't there. Back on Thursday, and he wasn't there. Back for eight weeks, and he never came again. Years later, Jean, the young woman, became Jean Houston, a spiritual leader and a guide who has founded the human potential movement. Someone gave her a book called The Phenomenon of Man by a French paleontologist and Jesuit priest named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. She began to read it and she recognized the language and the ideas and the concepts and realized that her dear Mr. Tayer had been Teilhard de Chardin. When I was in New York earlier uh, last month, I was able to visit his grave, which is um, in Hyde Park, New York, there in a Jesuit graveyard. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was a paleontologist. He worked on the Peking Man Dig in China, he also, when it came to sign up for World War I, chose to be not a priest or a chaplain, although he could have been away from the action. Instead, he chose to be a stretcher bearer, carrying the dead through the battlefields, engaging with the men, engaging with the deepest trauma of that horrible, horrible war. Teilhard was ahead of his time. He saw this connection between the evolution that he was studying and examining and literally digging his fingers into in, the chi in China and the reality of Christ in the world and how God shows up and this energy that he saw pulsating in nature. He saw these two things as one and the same. And when he began to write about it, it was so controversial that the Vatican banned his books in his lifetime. Teilhard died the Sunday after he said goodbyes to Jean. 
He died on Easter Sunday, 1955. Now, if you listen to me preach very often, you've already heard this story. And you've already heard this name for sure, but I had to bring out my best stuff for Easter Sunday morning. <laughs> and also, the musings of this mid-century priest seem to me to so fully embody the possibilities and the reality of resurrection and Easter. Teilhard de Chardin was a scientist, literally digging his hands into the research, seeing the evidence of growth and new life and pulsing energy in the physical world. And he was a man getting down on his hands and knees with a 14-year-old girl in Central Park, marveling over a caterpillar, asking beautiful questions like, what will be the butterfly of Jean? He was connected to the world as a friend and a companion, believing what he saw in his scientific study and what he saw in each person and what he found within himself, believing that all of that was one and the same. Resurrection is so much more than just being about Jesus rising from the dead 2,000 years ago. In fact, Richard Rohr makes this bold assertion, resurrection and renewal are, in fact, the universal and observable pattern of everything. Resurrection is what Teilhard felt and saw in the world and within himself. It's what he encouraged when he wrote to a friend, remain true to yourself, but move ever upward toward greater consciousness and greater love at the summit, you will find yourselves united with all those who, from every direction, have made the same ascent. For everything that rises must converge. Teilhard lived in the rising. He knew that it was the foundational reality of the universe. Jean Houston later found out that those last months of his life, when he was taking walks with her, in Central Park were some of the darkest moments of his life. And yet, his trust and his practice was in the rising, in the light that the darkness could not overcome. In the story that we told from Luke's Gospel this morning, the women get up early to go to the tomb. I imagine them spending the day before preparing the spices, doing what they could on the Sabbath when they needed to be home, and yet they're holding these, these precious little jars of, of spices to attend to the body of their teacher and their friend, to do what they could to begin their grieving process. And can you imagine their shock and horror to find that they couldn't just get on with their grief, that yet another thing had happened? another tragedy. And yet there are the angels, angels who remind them of what Jesus had said, angels who live, Jesus who lived under the weight of human sorrow and injustice, but had said to them that on the third day he would rise. They remembered, and they ran back to tell the others. But the disciples were gathered in fear. The disciples did not believe them. 
This is not the first time that women were telling the truth, but no one believed them. (laughs) You are crazy. You just want to believe this, they said. And in our world of valuing conquest, valuing a competitive edge and hard facts, we have tended, don't you think, to prioritize the masculine over the feminine voice. So I don't want you to miss in this story that it was the women who first understood the resurrection and who brought the news. One person listened to them. Peter. Let's take a moment to think about the journey that Peter had been on in the last 72 hours. After promising to defend Jesus to the death, he cut the ear off of one of the high priest's servants. And then he he slunk into the trial of Jesus, afraid and nervous and watching to see what would happen. And when someone recognized him again and again and again, he denied Jesus. He felt the weight of his shame. He felt the weight of his denial as the rooster crowed. When I think about what's not written in this gospel, I think it's stunning that that Peter found his way back to the disciples. He found his way back through his shame, through his loss. He found his way back to this community of friends gathered in grief. To me, it shows tremendous resilience and the tremendous power of the community that had developed around Jesus. And again, Peter shows his resilience, his rising, and his willingness to listen to the women. Peter listens and comes into a whole new way of being, and he runs to find resurrection. In the classic book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Piercic introduces us to the Japanese word mu. Mu is a response when someone asks you a question that is the wrong question. Mu means not yes, not no. So when your parents ask you if you've done your homework, the response is mu. Moo invites the asker to ask a better question, a more beautiful question, something beyond yes or no. When it comes to the resurrection, I think the questions we have asked are not adequate. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Is there life after death? How could God allow such terrible things to happen? Moo. How about these questions? Will we listen to the voices of women and the marginalized who tell us resurrection is possible? Will we move up beyond our shame, our despair and guilt, so that we can experience new life? Will we live with the eyes of resurrection even as we confront the pain and struggle of the world. In the passage read from Isaiah, the prophet sees a God with a vision for peace and joy, 
a vision where women and men grow old and justice is the law of the land. Is it idealistic? Yes. But also, maybe it's about asking better and more beautiful questions. Isaiah is writing from a perspective of exile. His nation has been conquered and displaced, and yet he holds a vision for a different future. Teilhard had carried stretchers in that gruesome, gruesome war of World War I, and yet he got on the ground to marvel at a caterpillar. Peter had experienced the capacity of his own soul, the words coming out of his mouth, betraying the one that he loved the most. And yet he still listened to the women and ran to the tomb. Maybe resurrection is about more than what we think it's about. Geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky once said, our world is not determined or random, but created. I think resurrection is about living in that creativity, believing that indeed creativity is the foundation of the universe. Maybe resurrection means choosing connection over consumption, choosing community over conquering, choosing creativity over either-or choices, rising over despair. I want to close with a poem by the Guatemalan poet Julia Esquivel. She was a poet, a Catholic theologian, and peace activist in Guatemala. She confronted her government over the, its treatment of the Mayan people, and as a consequence lived in exile for nearly a decade. She saw in the death and injustice in her country an opportunity for resurrection. It isn't the noise in the streets that keeps us from resting, my friend, nor is it the shouts of the young people. It is something within us that doesn't let us sleep, that doesn't let us rest, that won't stop pounding deep inside. It is the silent, warm weeping of Indian women without their husbands. It is the sad gaze of the children fixed somewhere beyond memory, precious in our eyes, which during sleep, though closed, keep watch. What keeps us from sleeping is that they have threatened us with resurrection. Because every evening, though weary of killings and endless inventories since 1954, yet we go on loving life and do not accept their death. No, brother, it is not the noise in the streets which does not let us sleep. Join us in this vigil, and you will know what it is to dream. Then you will know how marvelous it is to live threatened with resurrection to dream awake, to keep watch asleep, to live while dying and to know ourselves already resurrected. May you know what it is to dream awake, to keep watch asleep, to live while dying 
to know yourself and our world already threatened and already resurrected. May we live in the rising, in the power that raised Christ from the dead. Amen. As we sing the next hymn, I invite you to remember that this Easter Sunday comes the day before Earth Day. And that indeed that same energy that Teilhard saw pulsing through the earth is what we celebrate on this day. So let us together turn to hymn number 247 and sing Now the Green Blade Rises, hymn 247. <laughs> 